dismounted after the war. And then he recognized when he stepped away from that position that there were things happening in the world that showed him as he was following along the, the rising threat of both the Nazi party that was emerging and also the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. And so prior to Hitler's ascent, he was speaking, I think in 1928, he had just gotten out of prison, he was on parole, he wasn't supposed to be speaking. And, uh, and so in this book, Manchester says, uh, uh, regarding his insistence, this is Hitler's insistence, that he would never wage an aggressive war. But Winston did not believe him. Because he said, by his own admission, the man was untrustworthy. And then Churchill quoted Mein Kampf. He read it. He wanted to know where this guy was coming from. And this is a quote from Hitler in the book. He says, the great masses of people will more easily fall victims to a great lie than to a small one. Interesting statement. In hindsight, it's exactly what Hitler did. He propagated a great lie. The German people believed it. Many of the people living in Europe at that time believed it. And it's actually a stark reminder of the damage that can be caused by spreading and then embracing lies. It leads people into bondage. And ultimately, it leads people to death. In Jeremiah 28, we have a confrontation uh, by one of the temple prophets by the name of Hananiah towards Jeremiah's message. Now, I know some of you probably didn't hear the sermon last week, or maybe some of you did, Jeremiah 27, but Jeremiah 28 is really a response to Jeremiah's message in chapter 27, where he's wearing a yoke. God told him to put a yoke upon him and to go in there and tell the people that they would be under the yoke of Babylon. And so chapter 28 now is that response by the people at the temple. What is at stake in the story is the truth of God's warning being negated or neglected and the consequences that will come from not listening to what God is trying to say to us. I think that's extremely important. And maybe we wonder, uh, in light of the damage that lies create, how, they, how they're propagated, why does God allow liars to operate? You ever ask yourself that question? Why does God allow a lie to be extended out so that people actually can be deceived by these things? And I believe we get a little insight from the book of Deuteronomy when Moses says this in chapter 13, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or a wonder, and if the sign and wonder spoken of takes place, so even what they said happens, and the prophet says, let's follow other gods, gods whom you've not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you. It's a test. To find out whether you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul, it is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. So, you know, the question is, doesn't, doesn't God know if we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Of course God does. The question is, do we know? You see, we might think we know, but the reality is there's a lot of parts inside of our soul that we're totally unacquainted with. We don't really know ourselves as well as we think we do. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I think I've said this before, these two psychologists by the name of Joe and Harry, and they put this little uh, 
sketch together called a Jahari window, and it says, you know, there are things about my life that you see that I don't see. I'm blind to those things, and that's true of all of us. We're blind many times to the faults in our own life, but then there were things in our lives that no one sees, not ourselves, not others, but only God sees, and it's inside of us, and those things are never, they never come to light until pressure's put on us, and then we begin to realize that we are not what we really thought we were. You know, pressure has ability to test us in crisis, and so this is what Moses is talking about, and so many of us might be thinking, well, yeah, that's fine, that's the Old Testament pastor, but I notice here, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, again we read the statement that the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. Now, I think there's been many antichrist through human history. And everyone that's opposed to Christ is antichrist. But there is coming the man of sin, the ultimate antichrist. He will use all sorts of displays of wonder through si- power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. In all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So God allows lies to be out there because you and I have to embrace truth. You and I have to come to the knowledge of the truth. And truth is actually found not in a set of propositions, but actually in a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you and I love truth, we will ultimately get to the person of truth. That's Christ himself. That's that's where it'll take you. And he goes on, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth and have delighted in wickedness. You know, one of the problems with our human nature is that we, we actually don't want to change. You know, uh, one of the issues about sin is, the very nature of sin is its, its deceptiveness. You know, we think we're all right, but, but sin has a way of deceiving us to make us think we're okay. And this is generally facilitated in the human heart because we do have a desire to suppress the truth. We really don't want to know the truth Many times, we'd rather just you know, live in a state of self-justification. And so we suppress the truth in our lives. You know, when, you, when you're dealing with things, but let me just say this, here's the problem with embracing lies. Here's the problem with not you know, being uncomfortable and allowing truth to reveal itself to us and deal with the things in our lives. The problem with lies are they destroy us. They destroy us. They alienate us from God. They alienate us from other people. We're the the losers because of it. So in in light of all of this, you know, there have always been people who distort the truth. The Bible calls them false prophets. They're liars. As a matter of fact, when we read the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 8, it says, you know, these these are characteristics of people who will perish for eternity. They're, They're the unbeliever. You know, they're, they're the uh, person who's a liar. All liars are gonna end up in the lake of fire. That's not a good place. And you know, we can be lying to ourselves. A lot of people lie to themselves. But how can we identify false pre- preachers or false prophets or false communicators, distorters of truth? How do, how do we identify that their message is false? And Jesus talks about it. Matter of fact, 
in Matthew's gospel, he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Okay, we did have the sheep, didn't we? Everybody saw that? Was there a picture here before? Oh, it didn't show up. Ah. Oh, we, we actually had a graphic here earlier this week. It was a, actually a, a wolf, and then he had the sheep's, he looked like uh, he was in sheep's clothing. Don't worry about it, Vicky. But inwardly, these, these uh, wolves, they're, they're, they're actually, these, they're, they come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like the real legitimate deal, but they're actually ferocious wolves. Okay, there's the picture that I saw earlier this week. Uh, Pretty powerful. I can see why that we don't have the graphic now because now I can't see what's on the back wall. Okay. <laughs> there's, all, there's a trade-off. Thanks. But you're going to recognize them by their what? By their fruit you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, what is God going to do with it? He's going to cut it down and throw it into the fire. So God's going to address uh, people that are doing this, but God uses that. Isn't it amazing how God can even use the most negative things to reveal to us the true state of our soul? And that's what he does. It says, by their fruit you will recognize them. So what is actually the cost of lies? And what happens to those who not only perpetrate the lie, but the people who listen to it and embrace the lie? What happens to those who are being deceived? I think there's a number of things from this chapter in Jeremiah 28 we can learn about identifying lies, the mode of operation, the outcome, the impact. And I want to look at three things that lies do. The first one is simply that lies will always challenge and persecute truth. Because lies try to distort the truth. That's what they're doing. They generally give people a false sense of assurance. They cause people to put their trust in what's not real. And the outcome is often tragedy. They are, the people that are telling them often are self-deceived. They, they actually are sincere, many of them. They believe they're telling you the truth. Jeremiah 28 is a response to uh, the message that he's given in chapter 27. Let's pick up the story. In the fifth month of that same year, the fourth year, early in the reign of King Hezekiah, king of Judah, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azor, who was from Gibeon, said to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people. It's interesting. This guy comes from Gibeon. How many, anything, anybody know anything about the Gibeonites? Remember the Gibeonites? They were the people that actually deceived the early Israelites. So uh, there's a long lineage from the town of Gibeon of not so nice stuff. So this guy, this prophet is from there. This priest is from there. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed from here and took to Babylon. So now Jeremiah just said, you know, the king, is gonna, the king took those things, but they're not going to come back. This guy's saying the exact opposite. I will also bring back to this place Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So in essence, what he is saying uh, 
he's saying that Jeremiah is lying, that Jeremiah's message is false. And Hananiah is preaching an opposing message that God would restore what had been taken without any change or repentance occurring in the lives of the people. In other words, you know, God's gracious. Now, we have people today that are actually giving this message. God loves you. Nothing's required of you, right? Now, how many know God does love every human being? God loves us. He created us. But, you know, if we continue to live in our rebellion, what's going to happen is our sin is going to destroy us. And so what Jesus did was when he came to earth to die on the cross, he's actually taking upon himself the judgment of God for sin. We need to understand that. And when we don't turn to Christ as our Savior, we are still under God's judgment. See, God is calling us to turn from idols to serve the true and the living God. He's turning us towards him. And so there's actually this message today, kind of an easy believism gospel, that there's no repentance required. But that's not a biblical message. Because when I read the whole Bible, everywhere I turn, I see people preaching repentance. I see the prophets preaching repentance. I see, you know, John the Baptist preaching repentance. I see Jesus preaching repentance. I see the apostles preaching repentance. Jesus said, repent and believe. That's the call of the Bible. So that you and I have to change our mind about who we are in relationship to who God is. It's true, I said, that God loves us, but he loves us so much that he calls us to himself and he calls us from our sin and from our idolatry, which so often is expressed in self-worship, you know, where we feel like we, we are determining our own lives. So we, we don't serve God on our terms. <clears throat> you know, sometimes as Christians, we, we have this idea that God is here for us. Now, yes, he is, but, but it's the idea that I, I, I have an agenda and I'm having God help me fulfill what I want. That's not what it's about. What it's about is discovering what God has in mind for you and me. That he has a will for all of our lives. And I'm going to argue with you that it's better than your plan. God's plan for you is better than your plan for you. Because he created you and he had something in mind. And he knows what's best for each one of us. And I believe that once we come to him and God changes our nature, we're regenerated by God's spirit, we delight to do his will. We want to do what pleases God. That's when we know there's been a change in our lives. But if we remain in our sin, our sin will destroy us. The gospel message is Christ died for our sin in order to set us free from the penalty power and ultimately the very presence of sin in our lives. So Jeremiah and Hananiah used the same prophetic formula. They both say, thus saith the Lord. They both use symbolic actions. They, you know, the false prophet is behaving like the true prophet in every which way. The only problem is the messaging is wrong. And we need to be able to discern who's telling the truth. So Robert Davidson says, Hananiah's message is designed to encourage the envoys who are in Jerusalem plotting rebellion and to reassure the people that they need to keep fighting Babylon, which is the wrong message. Jeremiah says the only way you're gonna survive this, 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 what's going on, God is using Babylon to bring discipline to the people. We need to submit to this discipline. But if you rebel against it, it will be to your destruction. Jeremiah now responds to the message 
And it could be argued by some that he used sarcasm, though most people don't believe that. It says, then the prophet Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hananiah before the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. He said, amen. May the Lord do so. In other words, what you're saying would be great. That would be awesome if God did what you're saying. May the Lord fulfill the words you've prophesied by bringing the articles of the Lord's house and all the exiles back from this place. Now, God does do that, but it's after a long period of time. So Jeremiah understands that. Nevertheless, he says, listen to what I have to say in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. From early times, the prophets, the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war, disaster, and plague against many countries and great kingdom. But the prophets who prophesied peace will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. John Thompson says this, Jeremiah's response was not necessarily a sarcastic retort to Hananiah's oracle. As a lover of Judah and a patriot, he could only wish that Hananiah's prophecy would be realizing, and he could say sincerely, amen. May Yahweh do so. May he, continue, may he confirm the words you have prophesied, but he knew, he well knew that the truth was otherwise. In other words, he knew that this was not what God was saying. So he's reminding the people that prophets usually were sent by God to bring people back to their covenant responsibilities. You know, why does God send preachers? Well, you know, sometimes when we're preaching, here's some of the reasons, you know, why we're having communication come to us. One, to instruct us. Two, to encourage us. Three, to warn us. You see, God is gonna send different kinds of messaging. And when you and I stray off the right path, what do we need? Encouragement to continue down the wrong path? No, we need a warning and instruction to get back on the right path. And that's what Jeremiah was doing. And that's what he's saying. If you're gonna tell people everything's gonna be good and everything's okay, listen, it's gotta come true. As a matter of fact, there's more people preaching in the Old Testament and in the New a warning to warn people from sin than there are people coming along and saying, hey, you're doing a great job. Now, when, when do prophets preach peace? I think they preach peace when the people have repented. I think they preach peace when people are humbling themselves before God and saying, God, there's a great multitude coming against us. Like there was in the story of Jehoshaphat and the prophet came along and said, listen, don't worry about these guys. Salvation is from God. That's a word of encouragement and peace. But the people had humbled themselves and cried out to God. But when people are turning their backs from God and living their own lives and going their own way, the prophets will come and warn us not to continue in that course. And there's, that's usually the main message of a prophet rather than the latter. Because as human beings, we tend to do our own thing rather than turn to God and humble ourselves. But we're required to do that. The real test of prophecy is actually in its fulfillment. And there are severe consequences to those who prophesy or preach a message that's not from God. It's not biblical. Listen to what Deuteronomy said. This is Moses. By a, but a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. That's pretty serious stuff, right? Uh, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? That's a great question. How do you know when it's... Who's right? Is Jeremiah right or Hananiah right? 
It says, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. Robert Davidson says, future events would prove who was right. And Jeremiah knew that peace and security for Judah would only come from sincere repentance and obedience to the covenant. True or falsivity would not be demonstrated either by enthusiasm or sincerity, but only by obedience to God's word, to God's covenant. Okay, so what was Hananiah's response to Jeremiah's correction? This is interesting, verse 10. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it. Okay, symbolic act. Then he says this, And he said before the people, this is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations within two years. At this, the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. And so I look at this text, and it's interesting how Jeremiah responds to this. Notice what he does. He doesn't say anything. He just walks away. You know, we, you know, what's there left to say? Time would tell Jeremiah knew that people needed to choose to make, to make a choice, to which way to follow. He had faithfully delivered God's message and there was nothing more that could be said. You know, sometimes when we're talking to people, sometimes we just keep talking and talking. And all we're doing is alienating and pushing people away. You know, once we deliver the message, then we need to pray. We just need to leave it in their court, Right? Nothing could be gained by argumentation. We know that there's a time for all things. Ecclesiastes reminds us that there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. And this was a moment to walk away, and he did that. Let's take a look at the second thing that lies do. It destroys those who embrace them. The outcome of truth is freedom, but when we embrace lies, they entangle our lives, and they lead us into bondage. That's what lies do. The irony of Hananiah's prophetic action of breaking the yoke is the exact opposite of what's about to happen. Walter uh, Brueggemann says, unfortunately, it's far easier to break a symbolic yoke than it is to override Yahweh's tough verdict or to break the reality of Babylon's power. Hananiah's symbolic act of breaking is a symbol without corresponding reality. Nothing's going to happen. It's just a false action. After the prophet Hananiah, it says here, broke the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Jeremiah had gone away. God spoke to him. He says, oh, Jeremiah. He says, go and tell Hananiah. This is what the Lord says. You've broken a wooden yoke, but in its place you're going to get a yoke of iron. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to put an iron yoke on the necks of all these nations to make them serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. And I will even give him control over the wild animals. That's an interesting statement. How many know uh, it's very difficult to tame wild animals? So I like what Tremper Longman says, the reference to wild animals is best understood as prophetic hyperbole. Wild animals, after all, are wild and thus virtually impossible to subjugate. If If he can control, if Nebuchadnezzar can control wild animals, he'll easily control the inhabitants of these nations, including Judah. Then Jeremiah says this to Hananiah, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Why is it that people were willing to listen to Hananiah's false message? That's the key question, right? I think 
we all want to be told that God is going to be gracious to us. We all want to be told that we don't have to do anything. We don't have to respond at all. God's just going to keep blessing us no matter what we do. We want to hear that. And people today want to hear that. We want God's blessings on our terms. We want a crown without a cross. We want a gospel without repentance. But the problem is, this is a violation of the very nature of God's covenant. To remain in our state of sin and rebellion will only destroy us. Religion without a genuine relationship with God will cause us to crucify Jesus even as our predecessors did. And we know that for a fact. As a matter of fact, when we look at the story of Jesus in the first century, who was he speaking to? His own people. They were religious people. As a matter of fact, when they, the majority of people in Jesus' day did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. How many know that's true? Actually, the religious people were responsible for crucifying Jesus. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, this is what he says in his sermon. Therefore, let Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So I'm going to say this, that if you and I are not repentant, but just religious, we're going to be guilty of persecuting the people who are walking with God. In verse 37, the Bible says there, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. In other words, there was conviction. And then he said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, they recognized there was a response they needed to bring to God. And Peter said this, repent and be baptized. In other words, change your mind, turn to God. And he says, repent every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They responded and God changed their lives. And that's what God is asking of us, that we would respond to him, that we would come to him on his terms, that we would recognize that Jesus Christ died for us, and that all we need to do is change our mind and turn away from our wicked ways and turn to him. This was certainly the case of the nation of Judah under the preaching of Jeremiah. They chose not to listen to his message, and they turned to Hananiah. In verse what was the result? So I turn all the way back to the end of the book. This is the end of Jeremiah. This is what happened. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They camped outside the city, and they built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe there was no food for the people to eat. They were starving. It goes on, the city was broken. The wall was broken through and the whole army fled. The Judean army ran away. Babylonians pursued them. They took, overtook the king and he was captured. There at Ribla, the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He killed all of his officials and then he put his eyes out. What a terrible thing. He wanted him to remember the last thing you see is the death of the people you love. And then he put him in prison until the day of his death. How tragic. If you want to read a darker version of the story, read Lamentations, because it really goes into depth there. Let me look at the final thing that lies do. It destroys those who perpetrate the lie, the people that are spreading it. In verse 28, I mean, verse 16 of chapter 28. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you're going to die because you've preached rebellion against the Lord. In the seventh month on that same year, 
Hananiah, the prophet, died. Wow, that's sobering, isn't it? You know, think about it. If you look at the text, you know, you'll find out that he died two months later. Is that amazing? So after, after watching what happened to Hananiah, you'd think that the people would recognize that Jeremiah was the true prophet, but they didn't. They can, persisted in their rebellion. You say, why is that? Because people would rather believe a lie than the truth. Actually, Paul says in 2 Timothy, they turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That's a lie. Um, Go back here. I skipped over a verse. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. I think we have to be careful, you know, what we're listening to. Are we just listening to people because that's what we want to hear? Or are we listening to the truth of God's word? However sincere, I want to just, you know, end on this note. Philip Ryken says, however sincere it is, false teaching is always deadly, both for the teacher and for the students. False teachers usually mean well. Often they're nice people. They call themselves Christians. They seem genuine. They claim to speak in the name of the Lord. But Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are many Hananiahs in the contemporary church, false teachers who discount God's justice and deny the judgment to come. Leslie uh, Newbijing says, it's one of the weaknesses of a great deal of contemporary Christianity that we do not speak of the last judgment and the possibility of finally being lost. You know, when you read the last book of the Bible, what do you read about? When Jesus comes back, it's a day of blessed hope to the church. Amen? Amen. But it's a day of judgment. And we need to understand that. Reichen goes on to say, the lies about which Nubigen warns will be repeated right up until the very moment Jesus returns to judge the earth. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, then they will not escape. The Hananiahs will be saying, everything's going to be okay. Everyone will be saved. God will not punish us for our sins. But the truth is that God is a righteous judge. Anyone who does not repent of his or her sins will be fitted for a yoke of iron. The only way to throw off that iron yoke is to come to Jesus for salvation. Now, Jesus is waiting with open arms. His welcome is so inviting that it bears repeating, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's stand. You know, when you think about this text, it's quite sobering. Two people that are preaching... One is saying, you know, God's going to bring judgment if you don't repent. The other person is saying, God is just going to forgive you and bless you no matter what you do. 
And I believe that we're living in a time where a lot of people are actually saying, God loves you, and there's no call to repentance. And that's a, that's a, a lie. And it'll leave us in our sin. And I don't know where you're at today, even if you're a child of God today, or maybe you think you're a child of God. I believe God wants to change our hearts. You know, the true gospel brings about a changed heart. We become regenerated. What that means is God changes our desires. We have a heart after God. And maybe we're here today and we realize, you know, I, I like the idea that God well, bless me. I love that idea. I I love that too. And I want God's blessing for you and for me. But I know it only comes when I turn my life over to Jesus and I allow him to change me. And maybe with every head bowed right now, let's just close in a word of prayer today. Let's ask God to search our hearts. Search me, oh God. and See if there be any wicked way in me. I want to have a transformed heart. I believe that Jesus died for my sin I believe today that Jesus took my sin away and that he's in the process of bringing transformation in my life what a beautiful hope this is he's not going to leave us in our sin praise God he's going to take it away and you and I are going to start becoming like him that's the gospel And you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, I don't know if I've ever been regenerated. You know, I want to be. I want to have a changed heart. And that's you today. Just with with your heads bowed right now, just raise your hand and say, Lord, save me. Save me. Save me from my sin. It's beautiful. Yes. Not for the rest of us believers. I believe sin is a problem all through the journey. I'm reading a book today. I have just started reading a book called Respectable Sins. You know, we make light of sin in our lives so often, don't we not? Let's just pray and say, God, would you help me in 2023 to be closer to you than I've ever been before? That's my goal to be closer to you. Jesus, we just cry out to you today. You are the Savior. You're the forgiver of our sins. I pray right now that you would take our sins as far as the east is from the west, that you would restore our lives in such a profound way, that you would help us, Lord, to be seekers of the truth, Lord. You would give us the wisdom to discern what's true and what's false. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave today.